Now hear God's word from Luke chapter 13, continuing our study in the gospel according to Luke. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we are humbled before the words of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we ask you to give us your spirit so that we might understand them and apply them rightly. Father, help me to articulate the truth clearly today. Uh, Deliver us from all error, we pray, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman, Amen. amen. It seems that every family has certain indelible traditions around the holidays, particularly when it comes to certain movies that you watch every year. There are movies that are staples in your home, I'm sure, and it doesn't really feel like you've celebrated Christmas until you've watched uh, this or that movie. Uh, One that always seemed to make the rotation when my daughter was little, not so much lately, but when when she was little, was The Sound of Music. And I don't know what makes that uh, Christmas movie, but it is. I don't know why, but it it just seems like it's a good one to watch together. And there are so many admirable qualities uh, about both the story and the music. There was one song uh, that, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way, just, just a little bit. It, it's not quite as good as the others. It's, it's when Maria and Captain Von Trapp confess their love for each other, and they sing something good. I know uh, all of you ladies could probably just sing it to us right now. You know, the, you know the song, at least most of you could. The little girls could, could too. But do you remember the words to that one? The melody is great, but, but just stop and think about the words. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood, Perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing. You're right on that. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Now, I don't mean to overthink things, and even though I'm a Calvinist, I'm not, I don't want to be the kind of tight-shoed Calvinist that can't enjoy anything, right? I mean, you can get to the point where you just nitpick everything, and, and I don't want to press meaning onto something that uh, never intended to be there. But, but taken at face value, it seems clear to me that, that this song expresses an ancient error I think we all fall into rather easily. And I confess myself, I rather easily fall into this error. If something good happens to me, then I must have done something good to deserve it or to earn it somewhere along the way. Good things don't happen simply or merely by God's blessing. If I'm blessed, I must have merited the blessing. I must have done something good. And if something bad happens, why then you can automatically connect the dots to some specific failure that caused it. Well, that's a popular, uh, you know, folk religion, uh, tenet, tenet of folk religion, but that's not the gospel. That's not the teaching of the scriptures. That's karma <laughs> with a capital K. It's the belief that if you do good things, 
assuming you can do uh, completely pure good things of your own volition and of your own accord, that if you do good things, you always get good outcomes. And if you get a bad outcome, well, then you must have messed up. You must have done something equally bad to deserve it. Now, of course, we have to stop right there. We have to clarify a few points and say, well, when it comes to final eternal judgment, the righteous are blessed, the wicked are cast out. That doesn't, that doesn't change. Uh, but we see everywhere, and the scriptures attest to this, and especially the Psalms, there are times where the wicked prosper. And there are many times where the righteous suffer. And in this life, God is working his purposes out through prosperity and through suffering. And we have to trust him uh, to know what he's doing and that God is right and he is just. But never do we merit anything good. I mean, we, have to, we have to keep that in the center of our thoughts, that we have never earned anything good. And we've never done something in our childhood that now uh, uh, has earned us this, this, great, this great blessing. Now, in Jesus' day, they didn't use the word karma, but they still had this folk religion. And it's old as the book of Job. I mean, it's all, this, this very thought is all over the book of Job, where Job's friends are, are hounding him. You must have done something bad to deserve this, this awful treatment. And, and so they thought, well, good things happen to good people, and bad things always happen to bad people. And since God is always good and God is all-powerful, then when something bad happens, it must have been some sin on the part of the victim. Pretty simple equation. I think we're all pretty clear on it. So certain people come to Jesus and they've got this horrible idea ringing in their heads and they ask Jesus a question. Recently, some Galileans had visited the temple in Jerusalem and Pilate had killed them, and he mingled their blood with the blood of their sacrifices on the altar. It was an incredible tragedy. It was a calamity. It was awful. It was a terrible thing, terrible news. The implication of their question, as they bring this question to Jesus, the implication is, what did they do to deserve this? How did, how did they earn this treatment? What did they do wrong? Somewhere in their youth or childhood, they must have done something bad. And the context of, of the question also is that Jesus is a Galilean. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem himself. Is he not afraid of the same treatment? What does Jesus expect when he gets there? And maybe there's another level to this question as well. Jesus, who do you side with? Are you on the side of Pilate or on, are you on the side of the Galileans? Because you're saying and doing so many things to kind of disrupt and undercut uh, our society. Well, we'll get to Jesus' answer in just uh, a minute. But last spring, we took a break from our study in the Gospel of Luke, and we got to the end of chapter 12. And today, I want to pick up uh, with chapter 13. We're right in the middle of Jesus' journey from Galilee, his, his home country, uh, to Jerusalem, where in Jerusalem, it's, it's when he gets there, he'll triumphantly enter the city, he'll, he'll judge the temple, uh, he'll give his life on the cross, and he'll be buried, and he'll be brought back from the grave. So we're right in the middle of this journey to Jerusalem where he's going to do all of these wonderful things. And, and on this trip to Jerusalem, Luke gives us all of these side excursions. He has conversations, he heals, he sits down at dinner with different people, and he teaches uh, all throughout this whole trip. 
And so today, it's a wonderful way. We can jump right back in where we left off. And my plan is to join Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. And if my timing is right, we're going to end up at the cross the week of Good Friday, and we'll end up at the resurrection on Easter. Uh, We're currently in the epiphany season of the church year. Epiphany comes from the word uh, for revelation or manifestation. And so this is the time of the year where we reflect on all the ways that Jesus was revealed to be the Son of God and the way he was revealed to be Savior of the nations. And so this works out perfectly as well that through this journey from Galilee to Nazareth, we see all of these manifestations of the power and the wisdom and the salvation of, of Jesus. And so this should all just work out great, I hope, uh, if, uh, if we don't have a snow day to completely disrupt my uh, schedule. <laughs> we'll pray for that not to happen. So back to the question posed to Jesus. The question is, Pilate slaughtered these Galileans at worship. These people had gone to the temple to to obey the Lord and offer sacrifice. And instead of being blessed and forgiven and restored, they were killed. Why would anybody be killed at worship? Well, historical sources tell us that Pilate was always dipping into the offerings. He was dipping into the coffers at the temple to finance his own crazy projects or just just to line his own pockets. And so these worshipers might have said something or done something about that. They might have protested Pilate's actions, and they ended up being put to death for it. So what did they do wrong to deserve this? That's the question. And Jesus answered and said to them, hear this again. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I mean, that's, that sounds like what you're saying. You're, you're thinking that they're worse than the rest of Galileans. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or Jesus brings up another account. Those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus doesn't only take their their one example, but he adds to it another example, and he refers to another recent tragedy. A tower had collapsed at the Pool of Siloam and killed 18 people. Jesus asks, what did those men do to deserve their fate? Do bad things only happen to bad people? By your definition of bad, do bad things only happen to bad people? And then Jesus cuts right to the core of the issue. They're asking, what did they do to deserve God's judgment? And Jesus says, really, the right question to be asking is, why have I been spared? Why am I allowed to draw another breath? Why have I not been judged? Why haven't I been punished as well? I don't deserve anything. I don't have good because I am good. I'm not blessed because I've done something good. No, no one is sinless. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if we live and if we are blessed and if we have food on the table and shoes on our feet and a roof over our head and a car that starts, it's because God is blessing us in spite of the fact that we are undeserving. We are undeserving of every single blessing. This room that we inhabit, the breath, uh, the air that we breathe, the food that you'll eat later, we deserve none of it. The basis of our blessing is not our own goodness, but God's mercy and his grace. And, And if you've escaped a fate like the Galileans, or if you escaped a fate like the men killed at the Tower of Siloam, it's not because you're more better, more better. It's not because you're better than they. It's because God holds your life in the palm of his hand. That's the only reason you exist. And that's 
That's what Jesus is, is saying to these men. He's not denying that sin has consequences. Jesus is not denying that sin leads to judgment. But he's rejecting this bad idea that those who die tragically are somehow more deserving of death than those who are spared. Now that sounds like maybe, oh, that's kind of an ancient question dealing with ancient stuff. No, we hear this very same thing every time there's a national tragedy of any kind. Like, like the shooting in Las Vegas. I know what you thought because I thought the same thing. Well, that's what you get for going to Las Vegas. You shouldn't go to Las Vegas. It's Sin City. Those people, you know, the wrong place, wrong time. That was really foolish of them to go to Las Vegas. They got what they deserved. Or when uh, hurricanes hit New Orleans, well, that's, uh, you know, that's Mardi Gras, Sin City, you know, Bourbon Street. That's, they deserve it. That's, that's what they get for living down there. Well, churches have been attacked by shooters, and there are Christians who've been hurt by hurricanes. So how does your narrative fit? How does your narrative of these bad things happen to these people because they were bad and sinful? How does your calculation work when it's Christians or your brothers and sisters who are affected as well. You see, it, it kind of falls apart. And Jesus rebukes this kind of thinking. Jesus says this is wrong. Jesus says judgment is going to overtake all people, whether you're Galilean or hanging out at the Pool of Siloam or whether you're from Cary, North Carolina or New Orleans or Las Vegas. Death is coming for everyone and judgment with it unless you repent. There's another current here. There's a specific kind of judgment and a specific kind of repentance that Jesus is looking for. These Galileans who opposed Pilate had to have been some kind of zealots. It's, it's implied in, in the way the question is put and the way the answer comes. I, I think they, they must have been some kind of zealots. And uh, not only that, but you know this, this image of buildings falling over and, and crushing people. More of that is coming for Jerusalem, as you know, when the Roman army comes to Jerusalem. is going to bring buildings crashing down. So the message embedded in this is if you revolutionaries don't stop this destructive path that you're on, opposing Rome, if you don't abandon your insane nationalism, you're going to suffer the consequences. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And this path that you're on, this path of revolution and rebellion against Rome, this is not what's going to bring God's kingdom in. Join me on the way of the cross. That's what brings the kingdom in. Uh, the, the end of the city and the end of the temple is going to be brought by revolutionaries just like these. Well, Jesus builds on this and he follows up with an illustration in verse 6. <clears throat> he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, then you can cut it down. In this story, a man has a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And the first question you might ask, what's a fig tree doing in a vineyard? But it was not uncommon to plant different kinds of plants together in the same space. It was a great use of the land. And also the uh, nutrients that one plant takes away, the other plant could add. So it was very common to have fig trees and uh, vines planted together. Fig trees pop up all over the scriptures. Fig trees are uh, a symbol of abundance and riches. Uh, figs are great. They're good on everything. I mean, don't you agree with me? Figs are so good. What, what, other, what other fruit gets a Newton? You know, fig Newtons are great. <laughs> They're popular. We know that there were fig trees in the Garden of Eden, obviously, because... 
they, you can't have fig leaves without uh, figs, a uh, fig tree. And so the fruitfulness of the fig is, is mentioned everywhere throughout, throughout the Bible. But now we come to this story, and a fig tree is not fruitful in this story that Jesus tells. For three years, the, the, the fruit owner came, the, 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 the orchard owner came looking for figs so he could have his Newtons, and there were no figs on the tree. There was nothing there. So he tells his gardener, Cut it down. I'm tired of, of wasting this space for this awful fruitless tree. And the gardener says, give me one more chance. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to take care of it. And then after all of that, if it is still unfruitful, then we'll cut it down. Now, what is Jesus saying with this parable? One of the chief destructive attitudes that Jesus is confronting in this Jewish society is their assumption that the world all around them is corrupt and lost hopelessly, and God is going to judge them severely when he sends his Messiah. But the children of Abraham, the God's vineyard is fine. It's secure. It's special. It's safe. And, and really, God's trees aren't deserving of any judgment. God's vineyard is fine. The trees within it are special, whether they're fruitful or not, whether they bear any figs or, 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 or grapes, they're on the do not destroy list. We have the temple, we have the law, we have the way of life. That's the presupposition behind their question about the Galileans. Those men must have been some kind of heinous lawbreakers to deserve this uh, judgment. But, but we are safe. We are the good trees. Now, Jesus says this fruitless tree planted right in the middle of the vineyard is not safe. And the only reason it hasn't been cut down is because of the mercies of the owner. He's giving it another chance. It has, had, it has time to receive the attention uh, given to it. It has time to, to respond with fruitfulness, but not much time. The, this three years of fruitfulness is interesting. Why did Jesus slide that in there? Why has the tree been fruitless for three years? I've got a little theory about that. I've got a quick thought. In John's gospel, right after the uh, miracle of the wine at the wedding at Cana, Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and he kicks out the money changers and he pronounces judgment on the temple. That's in John's gospel. And it happens at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. At the end of Jesus's ministry in the synoptic gospels, in the, in the other gospels, after Jesus comes into Jerusalem triumphantly riding on the uh, colt and, and he comes in, the people are waving palm branches, that's when he goes into the temple and he kicks out the money changers and he pronounces judgment against the temple. And one thing that scholars think is, well, maybe that's just one event. John wants to talk about it at the very beginning of his ministry so you know where Jesus is headed all along. And the other gospel writers are writing a more chrono chronological study and they're putting it where it happened after the triumphal entry. I'm asking, what if he did it twice? What if he comes once to the temple at the beginning of his ministry and says, this place is fruitless, this place is diseased, this place is corrupt. And then three years later, he comes back and he says, yeah, it's corrupt. It's, it, this, this place is over. Not one stone is going to be left standing on top of the other. Uh, what if Jesus comes twice to the temple? And, and this little uh, uh, indicator here, this, this three years, maybe uh, the, the, the three years that Jesus gave to the temple to straighten things, to, to straighten things out. Um, 
Does Jesus come and inspect the fig tree one time, find it fruitless, and then come back three years later and inspect it again and finally declare its destruction? There's another reference that holds together with this. Back in Leviticus, if you have leprosy in your house, and we don't even know what kind of leprosy they were talking about then. It was not the kind that, that uh, we associate with leprosy. It was kind of a mold or, a, or a, 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 a corruption that could get into the walls. It could get into the, the clothes. It, it was something, and, and this leprosy, if you have it in your house, the priest come and inspect, he comes and inspects your house to see it, and he pronounces some cleansing, and he, he gives you some things to do, and he comes back seven days later, and he inspects it again. There are two inspections for this kind of corruption. So it's interesting to think about. Does Jesus make two inspections on the temple? Does he come and he finds it leprous and he comes back again three years later and he finds it leprous once again? That's interesting to think about. But either way, here in this parable, Jesus is pronouncing only a temporary stay of execution for fruitless trees. And judgment is coming. Repent or you will all likewise perish is his call to action. Now, shortly after this, Jesus visits a synagogue. Let's pick up with verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. And she was bent over and could in no way raise herself. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. <clears throat> and he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work and therefore come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord answered and said, hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. When he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and the multitude rejoiced for the glorious things that were being done by him. Now, all throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus has been visiting the synagogues, these local community centers of Jewish life, Jewish worship, Jewish learning are here, the study of the law. This happens at the synagogues, and it's often at the synagogues where Jesus confronts demons and sicknesses and deformities and all kinds of maladies. It should be evident to everybody who's paying attention, it's not the world around who's sick and Israel who is free from corruption. Israel is sick. She's in bondage. She's overrun with demons. And these demons and these possessions and these uh, terrible things, these corruptions are not in the back alleys, but they're found in the very center of her devotion to Yahweh. They're found in the synagogues. And it's so evident that she can't heal herself. She can't deliver herself from this oppression. Now, on this occasion, Jesus is at a synagogue and Luke he doesn't want us to forget where we are or when we are. He repeatedly says, they're at the synagogue, they're at the synagogue. Five times he says, it's the synagogue. Twice he reminds us that it's on the, on the Sabbath. And here on the Sabbath day in the synagogue is a woman who's been sick for 18 years. Her body is so crippled with pain that she can't even stand up straight. Her body is twisted and stooped. And when Jesus is teaching, he stops in the middle of teaching and he notices her and he calls to her. Now, this woman didn't ask for healing. There's no indication that she even knows who Jesus is or that she believes he's the Messiah, the Son of God. 
She has no credentials. There's nothing that indicates that she deserves to be the focus of Jesus' blessing or attention this day. But Jesus continues to break up this notion that we get what we deserve. (laughs) Praise God, we don't get what we deserve. Jesus doesn't step down and go to her. He calls her to join him at the front of those gathered. And he initiates and he says to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. He lays his hands on her and immediately she is made straight and she glorifies God. He takes her from the outside and he brings her to the inside. He takes her pain and he gives her peace and comfort. He takes her shame and her ostracization and he gives her restoration. But this doesn't sit well with one person in the room, the president of the synagogue. Now, why is Jesus there in the first place if this this ruler of the synagogue opposes him? Well, it's not uncommon to let popular young preachers come preach in the synagogue on the Sabbath. If Jesus is in town, well, I've heard of him. Let's let him preach. But now things are getting out of control. This, I, I asked you to preach. I didn't ask you to heal anybody. I didn't ask you to do this. This wasn't authorized. So the president of the synagogue is indignant and he protests. But he protests to the people. He doesn't protest to Jesus. He just says this to the people. He says, hold up now. Are we really going to put up with this? This is a violation of the Sabbath. He's got six days a week to heal people. This is work. And he just broke the fourth commandment. Well, Jesus shuts that right down. He says, you are a hypocrite and your piety is a sham. All of you have animals. Everybody in this room has animals, he says. And I guarantee you don't leave them tied up all day without watering them on the Sabbath. The rabbis had even established extra laws about this. I would say unnecessary laws, but there were extra laws about this. So on the Sabbath, you could lead your animal out to water as long as you weren't carrying anything. You could hold them by the rope, but that wasn't counted as carrying. It was counted as leading. So you could lead them to water. Or you can draw water from the well uh, in a bucket, and you could, you could take the bucket to the animal, but you can't hold it while they drink out of it. That's work too. So you have to put it on the ground and then the animal can drink out of it. Well, Jesus' point is that you've gone to all these extents and all these links. If an animal can be cared for this way on the Sabbath, then why not a daughter of Abraham? If you can lead an animal out of a stall who's been tied up for just a few hours, can't I unloose a woman from an infirmity when she's been tied up for 18 years? Not just a few hours, but 18 years. If you can loose the bonds of an animal on the Sabbath, how much more necessary is it for me to loose this woman's bonds on the Sabbath? What it comes down to is Jesus is the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He fulfills and defines the Sabbath. He's everything that the Sabbath was pointing to. And what he does for this woman is what he wants to do for all of Israel. Israel is bent over. Israel is in bondage. And he wants to beautify her. And he wants to glorify her. And he wants to stand her up straight like a beautiful bride on her wedding day. But as long as she harbors attitudes like this, she's going to remain twisted and she's going to remain plagued with infirmity. Israel's doing everything she can to prevent her own healing. Well, Luke says that Jesus' adversaries were put to shame after this and the multitudes rejoice. So Jesus continues teaching in parables. Verse 18. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Everything that Jesus says and does is is unexpected and it's dissonant to those in power. Jesus heals in the wrong place, on the wrong day. He heals the wrong kind of people. 
outsiders. Not, nothing makes sense to, to those who are watching. And now in his parables, he continues to set up conflicting images. He talks about a mustard seed growing into a mighty tree. Mustard seeds do not grow into mighty trees. You could call a mustard tree, it's a bush, it's a shrub, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a tree. If he wanted to use an image of power and impressive strength and height, he could talk about the mighty cedars of Lebanon. My kingdom is like the mighty cedars of Lebanon, but he doesn't. Jesus uses a striking image of a tiny nothing shrub, a shrub that you could take out with a weed eater. And he says it becomes a mighty tree. The kingdom of God starts out looking like nothing. And it's established in ways that you don't expect. And it's made up of people who don't look like the kinds of people who usually represent success. The kingdom is made up of outcasts and strangers, the, the uncomfortable, the awkward, the not always powerful insiders. That, that's who the kingdom is, is made of. And so he adds to this another parable in verse 20. And he Again, he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till all was leavened. The kingdom of God is like a little bit of leaven that a woman hides in three measures of meal. Three measures of meal is enough to make bread for 150 people. And just a little bit of leaven, just a tiny bit influences the whole batch of bread. That's how the kingdom of God works, hidden buried, quietly working its way through everything. I'm going to circle back to this one at the very end. And then Jesus goes on to the next town and all this talk of judgment on Israel has got people thinking, if we aren't fit, is anyone going to be delivered? Who's going to be saved? Just a handful are going to be saved? Maybe? Verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and from the west, from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are the, the last will be first and those who are first will be last. The prophet Isaiah talked about this great feast for all peoples, full of wine and fat things. All nations, including the Gentiles, would be able to say, let us be glad and rejoice in the salvation of Yahweh. And, and Jesus pulls from that imagery of a great banquet and he says, the banquet is still on. There are many who are coming. The feast hasn't been canceled. But there are some here in the sound of my voice who think their reservation is secure who are going to be on the outside looking in. There are some who think that their reservation is granted just by their heredity, just because they have the right ancestors. But they're going to be the ones on the outside banging on the door because they persecuted Jesus. They opposed him in life. They've, they claim all along to be part of a different household than he is the Lord of. And, and yet when the doors to the banquet hall are closed, suddenly they recognize their mistake and they see what they did wrong. And they start to say, Lord, Lord, you know us. We ate together, but it's all too little too late. 
On the other hand, there are many, Jesus says, who you think are going to be outsiders. And I'm going to roll out the red carpet for them. And they're going to come and they're going to sit down. So don't wait until it's too late to confirm your reservation. The day of judgment is final. Join me now. Because when the doors are closed, that's it. It's over. Now, at some point, some well-meaning Pharisees come to warn Jesus. And we'll finish the chapter here. Verse 31. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go, tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When it comes down to choosing between Herod and Jesus, these Pharisees are siding with Jesus now. They're saying, you know, look, Herod wants to kill you. Uh, I know you're on, on your way to Jerusalem, but maybe you should rethink your plans. And Jesus says, well, I've got a message for Herod. You tell that fox that I'm not changing course. I'm coming to Jerusalem. When he says you go tell him, he's implying that they're in league with him, that they actually have an audience with him, whether they do or not. Because Jesus knows what's going to happen. They're going to side with Herod and conspire to put Jesus to death. Now, this chapter began with this question being put to Jesus, testing him. Are you with Pilate or with you with the Galileans? Now the tables are turned and Jesus says, are are you going to follow Herod's agenda or are you going to follow mine? By calling Herod a fox, that's in no way to be, I mean, it's not like calling him a lion or a bear. You might call your enemy, oh, that he's a mighty lion, uh, he's a mighty opponent. But he's calling him a fox and there's, there's no way to, to paint that in a, in a good light. He's not a great man. Herod is not a straight dealing man. He doesn't have any honor. He's just sneaky. He's just opportunistic. He can do some damage as he has done and as he would continue to do. He gets into the hen house and he kills your chickens. He's a fox. But there's nothing glorious or awe-inspiring or powerful about him. And Jesus knows before it's all over with, these people who are pandering to him now and say, oh, you better not go to Jerusalem. Uh, It's dangerous there. They're going to be Herod's toadies, and they're going to be Herod's bootlickers. They're going to be the Herod's yes-men when they go to put Jesus to death. So Jesus says, yes, absolutely, I'm going to Jerusalem. It wouldn't do for a prophet to die anywhere outside of Jerusalem, right? I'm going to go because that's, that's where I've got business to do. We're not going to hide what's going to happen here in the boonies and the backwaters. We're going to go right to the heart of the city, right to the heart of the nation to do this. And then then Jesus weeps. He says, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and you stone the ones who are sent to you. I want to gather you together. I want to protect you like a hen gathers her chicks. There's There's a fox in the yard and I'm your only protection. I will fight for you. I will die for you. But you don't want me. You don't want me to to cover you with my wings. Your house is desolate, he says. And that house is obviously the temple. That that fig tree is barren. That, that, That second inspection that's about to happen is going to reveal that there's still leprosy on the walls. And the only way to avoid this coming destruction, he says, is to receive me as your peaceful king. Now, there are going to be those who say what Jesus says here. There are going to be those who say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But those are a lot of pilgrims who are in town for Passover. The city herself does not receive 
Jesus as king. They reject him. They reject his protection. They reject his healing that he's so willing and eager to give her. Now, to pull all this together, I'm going to go back to what happens in the middle of the chapter, the healing of the woman and the uh, parable of the leaven. This chapter is full of questions from people about who's in, who's out, who's good, who's bad. And in the middle of this, there's this woman who receives this unbelievable blessing on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. She asked for nothing. She promised nothing. She hadn't cornered Jesus and asked for this. She hadn't forced his hand. He could have finished his lesson that day and he could have gone home and nobody would have given a second thought about this woman. But he stopped, he called her, he took initiative on her and made an issue of her. Because this is the kind of person he came to restore, to heal, to deliver. This is the kind of person you might not even want to look at, much less be friends with or give much attention to. You've known somebody who's so sick and so consumed, you, you can't help them. You don't know what to say. You, don't, you can't do anything to change their condition. And, and for people who've had this suffering and this kind, of, this kind of ailment for 18 years, you know they can't go more than three or four sentences without, without talking about how much pain that they're in. Or this, this, this disease has overwhelmed her. It defines her. She's lost her identity and her sense of self in this consuming disease. If she's ordinary, as, as we've known folks who have suffered this way. And the way that Jesus brings her down front and honors her above all others in that synagogue is a judgment on our warped perspective on respectability. What, what, what's a good image? What, what puts on a front? That's what's most important to God, right? What's, what's the cleanest and the brightest and the shiniest and the, and, the, and the most professional and the slickest? That's what matters to God. And what Jesus says, no, this is what matters most to me. I've got a woman who can't do anything for herself and I'm gonna make her straight and I'm gonna make her whole in in a way that only I can and nobody else can. He works in ways and through people that the world ignores and we ignore because we're worldly. In all their facade of compassion, the world is so cruel to her children. <laughs> Satan is barbaric to his seed. But this is who Jesus wants. This is the starter kit of his kingdom. This woman, this, this is the leaven he puts in to his kingdom. I want, I want people like this. And then Jesus punctuates his miracle with a parable about a woman putting in leaven, uh, putting leaven in three measures of meal. Who in the Bible, this is great trivia time, who in the Bible made bread with three measures of meal? Well, the very first time you see this uh, reference, three measures of flour reference, was Sarah. When Abraham greets the angels who are on their way to Sodom, uh, Abraham says, you stay right here. I'm going to go get you a bite of bread. I'm going to get you a morsel. That's what he says, a morsel of bread, just a bite. And then he tells Sarah, I want you to take three measures of meal. And I want you to make cakes with it. A measure is about 50 ounces, 50 ounces of flour. That's a measure. He takes three times 50 ounces of flour, 150. That's going to be enough to feed about 150 people. And then Abraham goes and kills a calf and he gets butter and he gets milk. And he says, Here, here's this little bite that I came to, to, to feed you with, this little morsel, uh, all of this abundance. And, and when Jesus tells a parable and he talks about three measures of meal, he wants us to think back to the scene. Why, why would he specify three measures of meal if he didn't want us to think back to this? Back, back to Abraham and Sarah. Back to when before 
the church, when, before the covenant people were mighty, before they were a nation, back when the covenant people of God was Abraham and his house, one member of which, Lot, was under church discipline currently at the time. And out of this family, out of, out of this small house, God grows a mighty nation. And then he grows a kingdom. And then he grows this transgenerational, transracial, transnational church out of what he does with Abraham and Sarah as she makes some bread, makes some bread, greets the angels. So uh, how we get from Abraham to David, to Solomon, to Jesus, to the church, to God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. The growth and the outworking of the kingdom is through this process of leavening, this mysterious, secret, unstoppable process. Once you add leaven to the bread, can you get it out? It's done, right? You can't pick through there and pick the leaven back out, can you? It doesn't work. Can you stop it? You let it go and it works. And this is how the kingdom grows. He, he, he's, put, he's put the leaven in and he lets it grow. So you and I rejoice then over the small things. We rejoice over the little steps. We rejoice over the progress. We rejoice over the growth. We rejoice over outsiders sitting down as insiders. We don't despise the day of small things. We don't roll our eyes at small beginnings. We don't lust for the power and the wealth and the strategies of the world. We rejoice in the confusing, wonderful way that God continues to mess with our presuppositions and our prejudices. And he shows his great, abounding, unbelievable mercy to people who don't deserve it. Now, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I didn't do anything good, but somewhere long ago, Jesus did something good. And it's based on his sacrifice and his obedience before God that I can even breathe, that I can now stand in front of him and rejoice and give him praise. And I pray that you continue rejoicing in this with me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that your son manifested your uh, will, your delight, your desire in restoration, in healing, in growing your people and growing your kingdom. So Father, continue to strengthen us as your church, as your people, your flock. Continue to grow us and help us to stand up straight, just as Jesus called this woman to be loosed from her infirmity. So continue to grow us up so that we can stand up straight in the image of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.